Hello, we meet again. Happy Monday. Thank you for allowing me to have a much needed break. I promise that I am bringing you some great information today. This was one of the most highly, highly requested topics in fertility. And I have brought on a great special guest to chime in. A fellow nurse and friend of mine will be joining us. Before we get into things, I'm going to break for an ad and then we will get started. I'll go grab our special guest. You hang tight and let's get started. Do you like wearing leggings and activewear every opportunity you get? Me too, which is why I'm so happy to promote Acta Activewear. They not only have affordable activewear, but clothes that are comfortable, flexible, and durable, just like the person wearing them. Their clothes not only can be worn to work out, but also can be used in a fashionable outfit. Even better, they give back to a charity or cause of your choice upon checkout, ranging from human trafficking, providing water to those without, mental health, fighting hunger, and so much more. I have a special discount just for you to say thank you so much for listening in. Use my code KendraNeal15 at checkout for 15% off your order. Okay, as promised, I grabbed our special guest. Today we're spilling all of the tea on infertility and answering all of your questions that you sent in. Thank you to all those people who did that. Since I am not an expert on this topic, I did bring in one of my close friends who works in infertility. So everybody, please welcome Lexi. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. Okay, so Lexi, to give a little background, Lexi and I met when we both worked night shift at the hospital in the newborn nursery. So both of us are in totally different specialties than what we were originally in when we first became friends. But I mean, what can I say? All those sleepless nights and screaming babies will really blossom a friendship. Oh, God. 4 a.m., 15 of them just in synchronization. (laughs) I can still hear it. I have nightmares (laughs) about it, which is perfect that we're talking about infertility because some of you are like, "Mm, maybe I will want to be infertile, actually, (laughs) thinking about that. But um, Lexi left me to go work for an infertility, infertility clinic about a year after we started working together. And then of course I followed her and left the hospital as well to go work at an OB-GYN office. But I have never asked you this. What made you want to go into infertility and leave the babies behind? Yeah. I mean, leaving the babies was definitely hard. I, I still miss them. And for almost, gosh, Almost a year later, I was still kind of picking up shifts to get my baby fixed. But, you know, I'd always worked with newborns and new families, whether it was their first child or their fifth, or whether the baby was absolutely healthy from the get-go or requiring some time in the NICU. Um, You know, my first two years were in the NICU, the Mm -hmm. intensive care units for newborns. And so, you know, my passion has always been with these families starting out. And I was definitely done with the the hospital and the night shifts and the hours and the hospital setting in itself. But I just can't really picture being a nurse and not still working with families. And, you know, so what better way than to go to a clinic where you can help these families get to that point where they're going to the hospital, they're delivering, they're having that you know, yeah. life-changing experience. And I did think about going into peds because I do, I love babies, but I love babies and most pediatric offices go up to 18 and you lose me at about um, <laughs> eight weeks so you don't like the big babies <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so I, I do miss my actual baby fixes but 
helping start some of these families and these couples that just deserve it and want it so bad. It really, it's been great. I know. I feel like it's kind of a, it's gone full circle for you. You know, you've started with in the NICU and then you went to well baby nursery or in our case, it was basically a NICU. Some of these babies were so sick. Um, and then now you're creating babies, sometimes in a Petri dish, which is super freaking cool. It is. It's kind of fun to get, you know, behind more of the sciencey part of things. I found myself becoming a little nerdier in that sense. It's not as much patient contact in the mm-hmm. clinical nursing standpoint, um, but it's different. I mean, I have enjoyed it. But I do remember when, as soon as you had gotten this job and it had announced that you were going to be leaving the job, I remember you whipping out your infertility for dummies book. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, y'all, this is a broad subject. There's so much that goes into infertility and I've only known (laughs) the reproductive systems of newborns, you know, so (laughs) even this dealing with female adults it was so out of my realm so I did if you guys remember those four dummy books I always thought it was like become a plumber for dummies or something like that but (laughs) listen they have it for infertility I got it on Amazon I still reference it you know it it really breaks it down and it helps because there's a lot that goes into the subject yeah you're like five out of five stars would definitely (laughs) recommend that book because I especially trying to research this topic to do this episode. Oh my God, I felt like a dummy. Mm-hmm. I'm just like you. And I, I deal with plumbing, but you know, in the, the women's reproductive area, and I still <laughs> just had no idea what we were talking about for the majority of this, but. Well, yeah. And we'll get into it, I'm sure. But there's, you know, there's parts that have to do with the man having the problem and we all know yeah. men have problems, but when it comes to their little willy and everything, that. <laughs> It's always supposed to work. So when they have problems, I really had to <laughs> brush up on that chapter. <laughs> exactly. I feel like there's, you know, such a stigma too with it's always the woman's fault. And ladies, it is not. And we'll get into the stats here in a little bit, but I was shocked at how much of the infertility factor is actually influenced by the male. Those little swimmers sometimes are the, the cause of that. Yeah. Well, after that proper introduction, let's dive on in with what defines infertility. And I'm going to let Lexi lead us off on the definition of infertility. Yeah, so infertility is defined as the unsuccessful attempt to achieve pregnancy for a minimum of one year. Um, And I do have to say, we don't necessarily require that at the clinic, but a lot of insurances and Um, you know, to get coverage, if it's even offered, we'll touch on that later too, but they do Mm -hmm. have the definition of unsuccessful attempt for one year. So some of these women, um, you know, they're not technically infertile, but we're in a society that's so used to instant gratification. And, you know, women think when I'm ready and I'm stop my birth control or this, this, and that I'm going to get pregnant right away. And it's just not the case. We get a lot of frustrated couples, you know, they just don't understand what's wrong. They don't want to wait a year. A year is a long time. And it really is. And, you know, this was one question that was sent in so, so much. And I heavily researched it for you guys. And there's there's really a genuine reason why you need to wait a year. Because, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But I want to start off with our first stat. And 10 to 15% of all couples will experience some form of infertility. Now, with that said, most of these said couples are able to conceive after episodes of fertility treatment, and relatively very few are actually truly sterile. 
So how do you feel, Lexi, knowing that you're seeing 10 to 15% of couples in Austin and the surrounding areas? Yeah, I mean, let me tell you, going into this, it, it just kind of felt like, again, I didn't know a whole lot of infertility a year ago. So I just thought it would be couples maybe that were older or, you know, had their tubes tied and needed reversals or, you know, kind of things that you wouldn't expect you or your friends to go through. And now I'm sitting here as a nurse and we have couples coming in that are even younger than I, and they're having problems that it's kind of scary. You know, it's kind of crazy. It it, it makes you wonder, you know, I'm not ready right now. I'm not trying, but I am going to be 30. And so when I see this, you know, 26 year old coming in with her husband and they're having problems, who knows where I stand? I think a lot of people just don't know until they try and it's, they expect it to happen right away. Like we were saying it doesn't. And it's so scary. It really is. And I mean, reflecting back on the birth control episode, coming off of birth control, sometimes it can take your body three entire months or 90 days to truly get back in the swing of a menstrual cycle and open up that fertility window there. So that's already three out of the 12 months off of that calendar year that it's taking your body trying to get back to normal off of birth control if that's that's the case for you. So it can take a while. And I can only imagine these 10 to 15% of couples that actually make it to a fertility clinic, how frustrated they are. Because like Lexi was saying, insurance dictates a lot of the healthcare field, which I think is absolute utter bullshit, by the way. Why, why does the cost of medicine and healthcare have to be so dictated by people that literally know nothing about the science behind everything. It just absolutely infuriates me, but that's my opinion on that. Yeah. Insurance with infertility is very, very tricky. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily a medical problem like insurance. I mean, this is just my speculation, but do they really want to dish out the tens of thousands to help you have a baby and then also have to then pay for some of your hospital stay with the delivery and the care and the future of that child. Like, I mean, I can kind of get their standpoint Mm -hmm. as far as a business. They, there's a lot of insurances that don't have fertility coverage. So a lot of our patients are out of pocket. Um, When that is the case, they don't necessarily have to wait the year. Uh, They can be a little bit more, you know, impatient and come in as soon as they want to. But that is a lot of money we're talking about to dish out to just try to have a baby. I know. It just blows my mind. And luckily, these new assisted reproductive technologies or ARTS is the medical abbreviation, are increasing the success of treatment for infertility, such as ovarian stimulation, intrauterine insemination, or IUI, you might have heard it, in vitro fertilization, IVF. embryo transfer and um, this thing called intracytomoplasmic sperm injection. Did I say that right? That's a big (laughs) word. Yeah. Yeah. ICSI. It's, you know, I'm going to speak on our clinic. I've only been there a year. This is all I know of infertility. So many clinics may do this differently, but ICSI, what she's talking about where they specifically take one sperm that looks good and introduce it to the photocyte or the egg in a Petri dish let it fertilize. And then that's essentially what goes back into the woman to become an embryo and a baby. Um, Not every clinic does that. Um, We do it just in a regular practice. We don't really give the option not to, it's just, it's an increased success Mm -hmm. rate. 
that being said, back on insurance, some insurance will cover IVF treatment. They won't cover ICSI um, unless it's medically necessary. You know, there's a bunch of hoops to jump through for that. So uh, it, it's all very interesting when it comes to that. But we, as the clinic I work for, we do do that with every IVF cycle. It just, it does really mm -hmm. help ensure that we yeah, I can have the best chance. Would. Yeah. Very interesting stuff, but I just, oh my God, I don't think I could work at your clinic because I already get irritated enough with insurance at an OB-GYN clinic because they fight stuff that is so blatantly, obviously medically necessary to me. And the insurance will literally just argue back and forth with you about they don't want to cover this for this patient. And I just get so infuriated by it. So, you know, in an infertility clinic where they're not wanting to chunk out thousands and I mean thousands of dollars to help you possibly have a baby not even definitely have a baby I can definitely see why working with insurance in this field would be frustrating for both the patient and the medical professionals it it definitely is if you're considering infertility treatment definitely look into your insurance provider and see if you have the coverage we have had patients completely switch insurances um trying to get the better benefits out of their infertility coverage. Um, what that means for their other health benefits, you know, I've never truly asked, but we have had people leave their, mm -hmm. their work provider and kind of go off on their own to find something that'll help them a little bit more because a lot of insurances do not cover fertility treatment or they have many, many hoops to jump through um, to get that coverage. They'll make you start off on the very lower end of the spectrum of treatment. Um, and some people need more than just the IUI, which is basically, you know, in office, scientifically using a turkey baster and inserting concentrated yes. semen, you know, so um, some people don't <laughs> want to do that. They want to go straight to IVF that, you know, it just has mm -hmm. the higher success rate, obviously, because it's more insured, but right? Just not by insurance. <laughs> I know. God, insurance. Uh, what this is turning into a review of insurance. I know. Let's, <laughs> we deviate. <laughs> Let's get back on track. Insurance sucks. I, I will have to say, and it, you know, it sounds terrible as a nurse, but when a couple comes in and they have no benefit, it's just easier all around. You know, they just kind of know what they're getting into and we know what they they're know. getting into and we try to help them as much as we can. But it, the back and forth is, it's nauseating. It's, that's not why I, I went into nursing really by is. any means. So that's one thing yeah, I will say, really leaving is. the hospital and coming to a office, especially a private practice office, it's. Mm -hmm. I did not go to school for insurance. I don't care for it. I no, don't understand it. You don't want me doing your insurance because yeah. that makes no sense to me. So the bulk amount of my day is is talking with insurance about patients' medications or procedures or what have you. So not just infertility, any specialty. Nurses behind the scenes in an like private practice, office, clinic setting, we're not really doing nursing things. We're arguing with insurance a lot of the time on the phone to help you get what you need. So if something miraculously all of a sudden gets covered by your insurance, you can thank that doctor's nurse because she was probably on the phone for a couple hours yes. arguing for you. But back on topic, thanks for listening to our TED Talk about how to get insurance. <laughs> yeah, let's try to stay off of that as much as possible moving forward. <laughs> but I feel like that's a huge part of infertility. It is. People want to know. It's, it's expensive. Yeah. But infertility can be primary if it occurs without a prior pregnancy and also secondary, which means that you've previously become pregnant, had a baby, and all of a sudden you can't have a baby anymore. But both male and female reproductive systems 
are both to consider here. Like I previously said, there's that huge stigma that infertility is just the woman's fault. And that is not always the case. But I kind of want to jump back on the topic of attempting to conceive for one year. As previously stated, it was a question that was sent in so many times I lost count. And sometimes reworded, like, why do doctors require couples to try for one year before measures can be taken? It's not that they require it. Again, it's insurance. I was going to say, damn it. We just said we would try to stay away from insurance. I know. A lot of it is. It's it's in their stipulation. (laughs) If there is fertility coverage, and I've seen many patients come in and get turned down and then have to make the decision if they'll come back in a year um, or if they're willing to pay out of pocket on their own because they don't want to wait. But because of the definition of having to try for one year, um, a lot of insurances will not cover it, you know, if they see that you have had a birth control prescription in the last six months. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot more behind this as we're going to get into is, you know, th- it's not that the year doesn't make sense. There are some points that right. truly do. And to kind of answer this question, we have to go on a bit of a long winded answer. And if we say insurance one more time, just go ahead and take a shot. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm probably like, going to end up drunk by the end like of this. Like Bravo, Andy. I'm for sure going to be drunk by the end of this. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> but for successful conception to occur, the male and female sex cells, I'm just going to say the word sperm and egg here to save you the medical jargon. They must join at the most optimal stage of cell maturation, followed by transportation of the newly fertilized ovum or egg to the uterine cavity at a time when the endometrium or uterine wall is supportive of its continued development. And for these events to occur, the male and female's reproductive systems must both be anatomically and physiologically intact, meaning that they look and work how they're supposed to. Intercourse must also happen frequently and in a timed manner in your fertile window to ensure that insemination is occurring at a woman's most fertile times of the month. It's not typically recommended that you have intercourse outside of this window if you truly are trying to conceive because every time a man ejaculates, the sperm count can actually decrease, especially if you people are going at it like rabbits every day of the month. That, that's kind of where you hear couples start saying having sex is becoming a chore. It's not fun anymore, which I can totally understand. Oh, yeah. You're not allowed to just spontaneously have intercourse. You have to have it like charted on your calendar. Okay, it's 2 p.m. I'm fertile. Come bang me. <laughs> just can't imagine that. But um, even when fertilization occurs, it is estimated that more than 70% of embryos are abnormal and fail to develop or become non-viable shortly after implantation. And according to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, or ASRM, miscarriage is actually considered a form of infertility when it is recurrent. And you're you're certified with this company, right? I am. Yeah. So I did. I did do um, a lot of online tests, and they, you know, there's kind of like a whole online program that you go through with Mm -hmm. ASRM and um, it was really great. It it helped learn a lot. Um, I have to say, you know, when you say it's estimated more than 70% of embryos are abnormal, I actually do the kind of the data entry for our clinic. And I'll get into that a little bit later Uh because it is a really, really helpful site that you can go on if you're looking into clinics and, you know, reproductive medicine. But um, I 
again, you don't realize, like, you just think egg, sperm, they're supposed to meet at a certain time. And if that happens, mm-hmm. everything's great. 70% of embryos not being normal. I mean, we have patients now when they go through this, you can do PGS testing or, you know, pre pre-implantation genetic testing, which will say if, if the embryo is genetically normal or abnormal. Um, we just, you know, kind of for reference, this is not a hard and fast statistic, but we had a woman go through and retrieve almost 40 eggs, which is crazy. But I would say about half were mature, you know, that could actually meet with sperm and try to form into Mm -hmm. something. Um, They did do genetic testing. Most couples these days do. And, you know, at first I was like, I don't know if I would do that. You know, when you have intercourse naturally, you kind of get what you get. Now it's like this woman, she had almost 40 eggs retrieved. About half were mature or made it, you know, um, into fertilization Mm -hmm. with the sperm. Once they genetically tested, I think they had maybe six normals. Oh my God. And it's just, it's not as you you expect, like sperm, egg, meat, it's probably normal. And the, man, the reality of it, and, you know, seeing, we call back the nurses to the patients to say, Hey, you know, these are your results. We got your genetic results. This is how many are normal. Sometimes you can have a great retrieval and only come down to one or two chances because only one or two are actually genetically normal. They actually have the potential to make it. It's wild. That is why. And you know, coming from an OB-GYN clinic, what we tell a lot of our patients, you know, trying to conceive or, you know, not trying to conceive some of these patients, when I'm triaging them, when I'm, I call and I say, oh, well, are you on any birth control? Have you had any unprotected intercourse? Especially if they're having pelvic pain or vaginal bleeding, sudden and onset. I'm trying to rule out that they're having a miscarriage, especially with this statistic. And they just think I am losing my marbles to even question the fact that they might be pregnant. Mm-hmm. And what we try to emphasize, so many miscarriages, you don't even realize that you're having a miscarriage because of this statistic. It happens before, kind of around the time that you're going to be having a period anyway. So some of these women are like, my period this month was absolutely ridiculous. It was so much heavier than normal. If you had intercourse before that last, you know, after your last menstrual period, you might very well be having a miscarriage, actually. Well, and miscarriage has and such a, people don't yeah, know. miscarriage has such a stigma that it's, you know, you have the belly and you have this big loss. And of course that is absolutely Mm -hmm. a possibility down the road, but yeah, a lot of these embryos, if they're not genetically normal and we're not talking about a baby coming out with down syndrome or something like that. Yeah. That is, you know, a a genetic disformity, but um, these are ones that just absolutely have zero chance of flourishing because their chromosomes are so off. So they, they don't even, they don't make it very long. So like you're saying, you know, the light cramping, the extra spotting and bleeding, that can just be an early, early embryo that could not make it. The cells could not continue to divide. Yep. Exactly. And then when people know that, they're like, oh my gosh, but a vast majority of miscarriages don't actually happen once you've had a positive pregnancy test and, you know, the pregnancy starts going. It's actually before or around the time of mm-hmm. your period to where you wouldn't even think anything yeah. of it. So, A lot of people don't even know that they've had a miscarriage, technically a miscarriage, but it's pretty interesting to see. But with all of that background knowledge, even with the complexity of fertilization and implantation, like Lexi and I were saying, 80 to 85% of couples achieve pregnancy within one year. Dividing up that number even more, 25% conceive within the first month of trying, 
60% within six months, 75% by the nine month mark, and 90% by 18 months. Do you see and understand why, especially insurance, take your shot, they require for a couple to try and conceive on their own for a year versus automatically requesting for a referral to a highly expensive fertility specialist. On average, for even the normal couples that do not have infertility issues, pregnancy can still take six to nine months for a truly remarkable success rate. The 10 to 15% that potentially get referred to Lexi and a fertility doctor are people that have surpassed this one-year mark or have an underlying health condition that puts them at risk for being infertile or having fertility issues, or people who just want to surpass the insurance, they're okay with paying out of pocket. They've probably had baseline hormonal testing, maybe even a semen analysis done on, under the order of an OB-GYN before getting that referral. Vast majority of people, I would say, by the time they get to a fertility clinic, have at least done the bare minimum of hormone testing. Um, maybe the male partner hasn't even been tested just yet, just the one. Yeah, I would say when we're getting referrals coming from OB offices, um, again, our clinic personally has gone into OB offices and given semen analysis cups and kind of the flyer. And so we would be the ones doing that. Mm -hmm. If your office were to say, hey, you guys aren't getting pregnant, maybe you want to check out his sperm, they would kind of send that analysis our way, you know, the man would collect, give it to our lab. Um, so we would kind of be doing that as an outside monitoring unless they later became our patient. Um, but that can, a lot of things can be done in office and that's where the referrals will come from when, you know, if the semen analysis either comes back mm -hmm. abnormal um, or if some of the labs come back abnormal, then they're like, okay, maybe you should go see someone um, about further testing and everything. Right, exactly. And, you know, I can only speak for my clinic that I work for, our OB-GYNs are pretty wide spectrum. We actually do order a semen analysis, especially if our patient has abnormal hormone levels, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, they'll say, you know, this, you look okay. Let's further investigate what's going on. Your partner is more than welcome to do a semen analysis under me. If that's abnormal, we'll either refer you guys to a fertility specialist or he can go see a male urologist that looks further into mm -hmm. male infertility. So all of these things that an OB-GYN or even a primary care doctor can do as well, these, again, are to possibly help you get coverage later on down the road. It's We are covering the basis. We're trying to prove medical necessity, trying to prove that you truly are having a fertility problem. It's not just... We're just lavishly referring you out to these people so you can have the best baby on the block, but we're trying. <laughs> They're trying. And sometimes they still just push back. So it's a cruel world out there. But kind of speaking on all of that, wrapping it up, I want to bring up the evaluation of the infertile couple, which does include both the man and the woman. So as Lexi previously mentioned, not only do we evaluate the woman, but the man can also be evaluated at the fertility, at the fertility mm -hmm. clinic. But I said earlier, the ability to successfully conceive is dependent on the fact that both the female and the male's reproductive systems are properly functioning. Infertility can be caused by one factor 
or by multiple minor factors. And infertility in about 40% of the infertile couples actually has multiple causes. Therefore, treatment to be the most effective and comprehensive to be the most effective, a comprehensive and complete examination of both partners must be done. In general, the first six to eight months of the female's evaluation involve relatively simple and non-invasive testing, as well as possibly a radiologic examination called an HSG. Let's see if I can say this (laughs) without butchering it. I can say it so great in my head. An HSG is a histrosalpingography. Oh my God. Bam. (laughs) You added an extra G, but that's okay. Did I say? Histrosalpingography. You're saying salpingography. Histrosalpingography. Histrosalpingography. There we go. Hair flip. Okay. I'm just going to call it HSG from now on because uh, everyone appreciates it better that way too. Not just for you, but when we call patients or, you know, (laughs) tell them that that's what they need. No one wants to hear these big old words that they can't even pronounce, even as a nurse. It's just so annoying. People that I call sometimes, they're like, MSG? I'm like, no, I'm not talking about sodium content here. I'm talking about that test that you had. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. Um, But anyway, HSG is an imaging test that is used to examine the uterine cavity and fallopian tubes. During this test, dye is injected through a tube inserted through the vagina and into the uterus. A series of x-ray pictures are taken as the dye moves throughout the uterine cavity and out through the fallopian tubes. If the fallopian tubes are normal, the dye will flow out through the tubes and into the abdominal cavity, which is where the dye will be naturally absorbed by the body. test takes about 15 to 30 minutes and is performed by a radiologist. Wow, can't even say that easy word. Female-related fertility causes, while not always the reason, do make up 50 to 65% of infertility problems. The female partner could have one factor or multiple, as previously stated. Now, factors that can affect fertility in the female, one I think is blatantly obvious, psychological stress with trying to become pregnant. I mean, it's as the female, you're expected to when it's time to make a family, you're supposed to have that damn baby, you know, and you're just supposed to snap your fingers, put it in your uterus, do your job, you know, get, get to work. Um, And you hear these stories and I have seen them again, kind of rare. If you're having trouble getting pregnant, you come to a fertility clinic and there's truly underlying problems. You're a lot of patients aren't going to conceive naturally on their own at that point. That being said, we've had some patients go through the entire, you know, treatment of IVF, embryo transfer, not get pregnant, take a break because they're just so exhausted, you know, emotionally, financially. And then I've had just recently a patient call and she's like, I just peed on a stick and I'm pregnant. And she hadn't been to us in a couple of months. They were taking a little break. And so she naturally conceived and it was, yeah, it was wild. Um, And then we had one, gosh, a few months ago, they totally, they were like, they had been through the ringer, you know, they're like, we're done. We're not even taking a break. I think we're done. Um, And they called and ended up, Oh, this one gives me chills. Um, They ended up getting pregnant with twins. And they, (gasps) I just got chills on my legs. I just, (laughs) don't worry. We're in quarantine, honey. You don't have to worry about those prickly pants. (laughs) 
<laughs> they delivered two full-term twin girls and oh. they I mean just so you know there are those those kind of like little little miracles and you know sometimes that's where I have to truly contribute it to that psychological mental exhaustion stress I mean women have hormones and we all know mm-hmm. especially our the men in our lives there's <laughs> we can be greatly affected by them so I you know just being told to calm down it'll happen when it happens you know don't put that stress on yourself you you can't do that to a woman you just no. can't easier said than done have you ever seen how a woman reacts when you tell her to calm the fuck down <laughs> um bitch I will kill you yeah. you tell me to calm down I already know I need to calm down but you telling me makes me not want to <laughs> there's a different it changes the whole game <laughs> I can tell it's myself in my head but <laughs> challenge accepted <laughs> Another one that I think is obvious is age. Age can substantially decrease the rate of you trying to get pregnant and conceive. That's pretty well known. That's, I think, common sense. The older that you get, the harder it is to become pregnant. Well, for multiple reasons. I mean, your your natural egg count is deep from the moment you are in your mother's womb. Us women don't even have a goddamn chance to get out in the world and do what we can do yet. Our (laughs) eggs are decreasing the moment they're being created. Every moment. Newborn babies who can't even walk or roll over yet, their egg count is decreasing. (laughs) (laughs) Their eggs are decreasing every single second of every day. And so it's just by the time, you know, we're getting older and we're living in a society now where it used to be the norm to get married, have babies before you're 30. I mean, and now mm-hmm. everyone is very much, we're more independent. We want to have careers. We're living, I mean, especially here in Austin, Texas, like people are having too much fun to settle down and have kids right yeah. now. And so that's not that's the thing in your thirties. That's not what you do in your twenties. I know, but it's here in this city. so scared. Like 35 is, seems like an, you know, I'm about to be 30 and by no means is me and my partner ready to have kids yet. And so I think we've got a few years before we even do the whole marriage thing. And, you know, we want to travel the world. We want to really establish a life, but at the back of my head, I'm just thinking about my poor ovaries. Like my ovaries are screaming. (laughs) They're screaming, crying, and dying. (laughs) And (laughs) so there's that. And then also with age, you know, we talked about the, the genetics earlier with age, Mm-hmm. that number just continues to substantially go down. So you may be creating eggs. They may be meeting with the sperm, but the likelihood as you get older of that being a genetically normal embryo is just, I mean, it's plummeting. That is just terrible. But yeah, the, this stat too that I found going along with this age, after age 24, your I want you to imagine this curve in your head, you know, of you're so fertile, so fertile. The second you hit age 24, you hit a sharp little decline of how, of your chances of actually getting pregnant. In fact, by the age of 40, the chances of you getting pregnant are less than 5%. I'm, I'm 24, almost 25. Should I start freezing my eggs? Holy moly. Girl, that's terrifying. I mean, I, I see it. it it's something I would never I don't know. Now that I'm in this world and I'm seeing all this stuff, I'm like, shit, do I need to like put out a PSA to my friends? Like you need a fertility preservation girl. Like whether you're with a partner or not, we have a lot of women in the Austin area coming in just to freeze some eggs. 
you know, just yeah, I might come see you. You know, me and my dating history. <laughs> yeah, you baby coming anytime soon. You've got some time on your hands, and if you're about to be 25, it's going down. So it's crazy. And we do have women come in freezing eggs just to when they do meet their partner that they have something in the back for storage. Um, but that also being said, if you ever look into that, you might have a doctor who talks to you and tells you freezing eggs on their own that are not fertilized with sperm don't have um, as great of a success rate to make it through thawing, um, introduced to sperm and make it to, you know, anything genetically salvageable. Which is why I think I would really have to think about it. And just the whole process of, you know, injecting yourself with hormones, going through the egg retrieval, being on such a strict, no intercourse thing like that, just all in the name of freezing eggs and maybe getting pregnant out of it a little bit later in life. I'm kind of like, maybe I'll just, you know, take my chances. I have Teddy. That's all the kids (laughs) that I need for right now. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to be young and single and to think about, you know, that future, especially when, again, it's costing so much money. A lot of, like you said, injecting yourself with medications, time, frustration, and and it's it's a big thing. And then once you get those eggs, if you freeze them, um, you know, in a lab, like for us, if you freeze them in our lab every year, you have about a $500 payment to continue to have them stored properly. That is just crazy to me. It's like you're freaking renting out a storage locker. <laughs> for your nope, little baby just eggs. <laughs> they're just my children in there. Don't touch them. <laughs> <laughs> Again, touching on the age thing, if you're over the age of 35, you're automatically deemed what we call advanced maternal age, which some people are just so mortified by being labeled as that, and understandably so, because you're still relatively very young at 35, but not on the fertility spectrum. And because of this, your doctor might actually refer you to a fertility specialist earlier than the one-year mark of not being able to conceive just because you already have one of the most top causes of infertility in your basket. Um, moving on to the next cause of female infertility, it's called ovulation problems. We're going to go over some of these a little bit more in depth just because there's a lot to cover in them, but ovulation problems kind of summarized is hormones not being at adequate levels in the cycle to allow for ovulation to occur. There is a lot that goes into hormones being on track at the right time of your cycle and causing the egg to release from the ovary, flow through the tubes and implant on the uterine cavity. There's so many hormones in the body that has to be at just the right level for all of that to take place. So miracle that we're even here to begin with. But anatomical problems are another thing. This can be determined by having a previously mentioned HSG done or other imaging options such as saline-infused sonogram or cyst, hysteroscopy, or laparoscopic procedures. These imaging tests help doctors to see if your uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries look normal and are open. Yeah, so let me touch on that because have you ever heard of a unicornary uterus? Maybe you have. <laughs> Uni- I've heard of a bicornate uterus. Yeah, so... <laughs> Listen, this is another <laughs> another problem as a female that I never knew could be a, a freaking problem is that your uterus, you know, the septum, for example, that goes through your nose, that little piece of cartilage, there's women walking around out there that have that septum in their uterus. So when you're 
you know, when you're becoming a woman inside your mom's body, you know, and all of your, um, why am I blanking? All your structures are being formed. <laughs> Come on, fertility girl. Oh, that's such a role. When all your structures, Come on, neonatal nurse, <laughs> when tell us about your it. organs and such are being formed, when you're being formed inside your mom, your uterus actually starts off as two halves or two cavities, and as it continues to develop, becomes one. So there are some women walking around who don't get that full development, and they have a little septum in their uterus. Some go all the way down, you know, and it's a total division where they literally have two completely separate sides of their uterus, and then some just have like a little bit of the tissue coming down that makes it much harder for the embryo to implant and it, you know, eventually get pregnant. And so they just need that kind of shaved off, taken out, but it is a surgery, but I didn't know that was a thing until I started working there. I wish you could see my face. <laughs> I'm just, just sitting here in shock. Like I, I knew this was a thing because we obviously do, you know, saline infused sonograms, regular pelvic ultrasounds in an OB-GYN office. And um, if people do have this known problem, I didn't know that all like the formation of that. That's cool. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Lexi, for letting me know that. But Just another thing for you to be worried that you might have, because you would never know otherwise, right? It, it doesn't affect you normally. I don't know. Ugh. That just really, I guess kind of touching on that, that you can have this septum problem and your uterus can be malformed is, it's called peritoneal problems which is where you can have pelvic adhesions or the most common thing that people know about is endometriosis which is where uterine tissue is growing not in your uterus it's growing in places that it should not be growing on whether it be your intestines your ovaries your bladder it's very painful because around the time of your menstrual cycle when you're supposed to be having period cramping yeah everywhere that that uterine tissue is connected to you're going to feel the cramping there as well, which is terrifying. And endometriosis definitely plays a part in fertility, which we'll get a little bit into here in a little bit. But cervical mucus problems, this just grosses me out. <laughs> as mentioned in the birth control episode, if cervical mucus is too thick, it can actually block sperm from reaching the egg, which a lot of birth controls, that's their mechanism. It's being a little security guard, essentially. But 10, for, 10 to 15% of couples, no explanation can be found of why they're having infertility problems. That is so sad. So 10, per, 10 to 15% of the 10 to 15% going to see Lexi at a fertility special specialist office. Yeah, there is, you know, every once in a while times where, you know, my doctor's kind of scratching his head and just, you know, we've run all the tests, everything looks normal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then we go through a cycle of, you know, maybe just an intercourse cycle, or there's kind of the grades of moving up into the intensity of fertility treatment. And there, you know, we're just still not really finding out why we're not getting any results, or they go through IVF, and you know, they've done multiple transfers, then and then the woman is just not coming back pregnant. Um, So there are some patients that are just harder to kind of deem and figure out what's going on with them and put together a plan that's gonna work and you're also asking them to stick with you and stick through multiple cycles and it's it's just it's a lot I think I would just punch a wall at that point well that's you know for other nurses that are listening and we all know there's the patients you love and you just you want everything for them you want them to have this baby Mm -hmm. so bad and then you have these patients and you know I try not to get angry some of them are just mean 
Like no matter what field we are working with, there are some patients yeah. that are just mean, mean, mean people, but there are some in, you know, in infertility where either <laughs> they're just pumped with so many hormones that they're losing their shit. Um, or, you know, oh my God, they're just imagine. so frustrated and so exhausted and they just want this damn baby so bad that they, they're losing their mind. And then, you, I mean, which understandably understand it 100% but it's just it's scary for the couples too. you kind of see them come in hopeful and excited and towards the end of some of these rounds if they're not working you just you know you see them like that can really divide up a couple oh it it really can and you know I wonder how I would be you just you can't write it off I mean this is no yeah I don't think I'd be very pleasant I'll come hold your hand Lexi because I'll just get back at you Your partner's not allowed. Y'all would just bicker back and forth. I'd be like, listen. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I think about a little crazy because it's more so, you know, it's not even just them putting up with you, right. Going through this. It's also like, we've kind of touched on sometimes it's the man's problem. And a lot of these men, when we have to call them and tell them, Hey, things, you're the cause. Things don't look great. You know, they take it very hard. No man wants to be told that his one (laughs) glorious piece that he has on him isn't working right. And you know, you're a swimmers are not a pinpointing it down to you know it's the female or it's the male that in itself can get into someone's head so badly that they can't handle it you know they just feel like their partner looks at them like you're not doing what you're supposed to do um and then of course again as we keep coming back to even if you can get through that if you can stand by your partner and go through the hormones and everything else it comes down to finances even if some of Mm -hmm. these insurances take your shot of a drink even if some of these insurances if they have coverage it might only be up to 10 grand or 15 grand and if you have to go through multiple cycles you are burning through that in two seconds and then suddenly you're out of pocket and oh only 15 grand oh well it's just it's astronomical let's talk boys and their factors that affect fertility their problems make up 20 to 40% of rationales why conception is not occurring. Can easily be tested with a semen analysis. It doesn't require an invasive testing like sometimes female testing requires. Not having enough sex and having too much sex, as previously mentioned, if a man is ejaculating having sex too much, the semen may actually have no sperm in it because his body has not caught up with him in the sperm manufacturing department. So that's where we go back and touch on, you need to have sex at timed intervals. So with this one, um, there's so much that can be touched on. Um, When we have men go and do a semen analysis, we tell them they need to be abstinent for three to five days. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is for that exact reason. Many people any man can ejaculate for the most part, right? Something is coming out, it's right. white, it does its thing, um, but that does not mean there's sperm necessarily in there. Or if there is, mm-hmm. it may have problems. So there's a lot of things that get looked at in a semen analysis. Um, and we do have to call those back as nurses. And I know your clinic does as well. And some <laughs> some men, you know, they just kind of take it. They don't really ask a lot of questions because they don't expect they just don't want to talk about it it's embarrassing it's very embarrassing and especially with another woman you know so when we're calling Mm -hmm. and saying you know if you say it's all normal they're 
happy-go-lucky most of the time. They're like, okay, great, thanks, bye. Um, if there's abnormalities, sometimes they're very minor, um, and it's not necessarily what's the underlying cause of the couple's infertility. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. they're pretty major, and you know, they it's hard for a man to hear that his sperm is just not cutting it. So I know we look at um, total count. So how many sperm they're just seeing under a microscope. And it's not us Mm -hmm. as the nurses, it's in our lab, it's with our scientists. Um, But they look at total count of sperm. They look at total modal sperm, which is how many are actually moving in a forward direct motion. Um, And then they also look at morphology, which is the shape, you know, is there a head, mid piece and tail. And sometimes I would say most commonly, if everything else looks normal, sometimes it's the morphology, the shape of the actual sperm that will be a little off. And again, that's not something that would be the only underlying cause that might be paired with, you know, some motility, some other things going on that are making it hard, but trying to explain to a man, it's so much nicer when they're just like, okay, thanks. Bye. Regardless of the results. And when they're like (laughs) questioning, because they're just not grasping, you know, what we're trying to say and like, well, the morphology is a little low. Well, what is that? Well, you know, it's kind of the yeah, shape. What's a big word. Right. So, and then, you know, just try to say, well, shape's a little off. And they're like, well, why? Like none of them have tails. And you're like, I, again, we're the nurse relaying the message from a scientist right. who is paid much better and highly trained in this. So it's kind of like, uh, it, it doesn't well, look good. I can. <laughs> My favorite is explaining motility, which is how well they're swimming, essentially. Are they Michael Phelps in an Olympic race or are they me doggy paddling in the community pool? And (laughs) they're not happy to hear that sometimes as well. I'm going to start using that. Like, listen, you don't have any Olympic (laughs) swimmers on your hands, but we can probably (laughs) work with your your little floaty babies, okay? (laughs) We can, we can work with the doggy paddle. They're moving, I'm just not very fast. They've got a donut around their waist, but they're they're still surviving. <laughs> Little floaties. But yeah, touching on what Lexi said, semen analysis characteristics include total volume. So how much semen is coming out? And for those who don't know, semen is actually, it includes both the liquid part and the sperm itself. So people kind of incorrectly interchange sperm and semen come whatever you're trying to use to describe this incorrectly sometimes. Sperm are the actual cells inside of the liquid semen to make things, kind of break things well, down Well, I think that's where better. a lot of like the misconception comes in too. It's like a man can produce mm-hmm. cum, semen, whatever. Semen. Uh, right. It can seem like a large amount. That does not mean there's adequate sperm in sperm. there. Um, so we have a lot of you know, a lot of people just don't grasp that. Like he's ejaculating, he's no. producing, and it's it's hard to explain. Thing. Like the cells <laughs> aren't really in there, and then vice versa. Very situational. You know, we're asking you to jack off into a cup and yeah. give it to us and hand it over, which is very embarrassing for the men. And sometimes the amount is much smaller. Like you didn't really get pleasure right. into doing that, especially knowing what you're doing and kind of that anxiety in coming room. into the results. Um, absolutely so sometimes when we call that's the only thing that's kind of on the lower end of the spectrum is like oh the actual Mm -hmm. amount was a little low but that's very situational that's not really the big deal that we're looking at we're looking at right the cells and you know the shape and everything we were talking about earlier 
Right. Including pH. Like if sperm is too acidic, if any environment is too acidic, actually, let me rephrase that. It can kill off bacteria, cells, can cause a wide variety of problems. Just like your stomach. This is the best example that I can think of. Your stomach is full of acid. It is obviously an acidic environment. Your stomach breaks down and kills things and digests them. That's what can happen if a specimen is too acidic. So pH is something that we look at in terms of semen analysis as well. And then touching on, you know, analyzing what is inside of the semen, sperm concentration, which is how many sperm in million are present per milliliter of that semen specimen. And then total sperm count, million per total ejaculate, kind of a little similar on those, but a little different, but motility and then morphology, like Lexi was saying, those are the, we were kind of briefly touching on this just ourselves earlier before the episode of every clinic obviously has different semen analysis. Not all of the characteristics are the same, but total volume pH, sperm concentration, total sperm count, motility, and morphology. Those are the main common similarities that I could find amongst all of the different clinics and facilities that order a semen analysis. Some of them go a little bit more in depth than others. Some are more basic than that, but these are the most common similarities that I could find. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. We don't really look at morphology or I'm sorry, uh, pH. Yeah. Um, and that's something we do. So that's, yeah. that's and then totally we have some different couples there. coming from different clinics um, that will give us their semen analysis report and they don't really look at morphology, which is the shape, um, which to us sounds strange because we do. So it's just one of those things, unfortunately, with all healthcare that some doctors care about certain things and some don't. And it's hard to know what's right and what's right. wrong. Cause when you break it down individually, everything seems to make sense. Um, but when you look at the exactly. bigger picture, some things are not as important as others. So. Absolutely. And like what you were saying as well, men ejaculate. So sometimes if a man can't actually ejaculate, it's because they actually could have an underlying STD or STI. It's called epididymitis which is where the tube that delivers the semen through the urethra and out through the penis, it's inflamed and shut and blocks off the man from being able to ejaculate, which can be very, very painful for the male because he has all this sperm that is trying to rupture like a volcano and it can't because it's blocked off. Isn't that also um, sometimes called, um, what is it, whiskey dick? It might be. I think, I think whiskey dick is where where the penis goes soft, and it has to do with blood flow, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, such a fun time when that happens. I know. Been there. <laughs> <laughs> but other than STD, STIs, previous exposure to mumps, mumps can make you know, destroy a man's reproductive system and make fertility a problem. That's not really, you know, common these days, especially if you're getting vaccinated like you should. Um, that That's not something that you have to worry about. Last thing is prostatitis. <laughs> prostatitis. God, I can read them so well in my head. 
people make fun of me all the time for how I pronounce things. I'm not trying to pronounce things for you professionally. That's not my career. But um, which is swelling and inflammation of the prostate itself, which is the organ that produces the liquid part of the semen like we were previously talking about. Other factors that go into the male infertility spectrum, surgery or trauma to the genitalia. I don't know if y'all have seen The Longest the longest ride is that that nicholas sparks movie yes about the bull ride but the longest ride so the male the older male in the movie he went and fought in the war and he had trauma to his genital area and he couldn't have children because he had i think a bomb went off and he had an injury from that and that's I mean, like the main if you got a swift kick to the nuts at some point you might have problems i know i'm just going to the most extreme measures over here <laughs> i don't know how many men in austin have gone to war, war and had a bomb go off <laughs> been exposed to moms however maybe a little more common yes. but um lastly exposure to lead cadmi- cadmium radiation or chemotherapeutic agents some medications such as barantoins or calcium channel blockers can reduce sperm quality and or function. So in terms of, like if you have cancer, have to receive radiology, chemotherapy, um, you have kidney failure, that sort of stuff have to be on certain medications like calcium channel blockers that can definitely affect sperm quality as well. But I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Is it true that the majority of the patients that are referred to you at the fertility clinic have already had baseline lab work done elsewhere, such as female hormone testing, male semen analysis, et cetera, HSG even? No, I would say mostly everyone that comes in is kind of a blank slate or they're coming from a different clinic. Um, It's kind of rare that we have someone that's just come from an OB office that's truly done, you know, a couple of the baseline tests Mm -hmm. or have their semen analysis already. Um, not saying that they don't, but I would say most of our patients that come in are kind of a blank slate as far as figuring out what's going on. Wow. My concept of when we refer people is just totally odd to me. But I also, I only work for one clinic right. in Austin. So who knows what the other clinics practice at other ob Well, and, you know, and, and that in itself too is you may refer them to have a semen analysis. We may be the ones conducting the act of, right. And now, you know, but you guys are the ones that call. It doesn't mean that they're not moving on to fertility treatment. We're just, again, like you're saying, we're one practice in Austin. There's quite a few in the surrounding area. So, right. Right. Um, we could just not be, you know, they could be choosing where else they're going as far as to see a doctor. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean just because you referred them to us for some of these tests. Yeah. They come to us, and again, back to insurance. Yep, might not be shot. the same person. Yeah, we might not be able to, you know, some insurances. Again, if you're looking into fertility treatment, if you do have some coverage, you might want to look into um, if we are in network. Um, a lot of fertility practices, some of the practice may be in network. Some of the lab portion may be out of network. Mm-hmm. Some insurances require a center of excellence. Um, some do not. So there's you know, a lot of decisions that go into where you choose to have your fertility treatment. So interesting. So what actually takes place once a patient comes to you? I'm a little bit so, lost on what happens because 
you know, once we refer a patient to you, the next time I see them is when they're calling me to schedule their new OB appointment because they've been cleared with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, so what, what happens is we have a patient call, um, you know, we'll kind of talk on the hypothetical that they're coming from an office like yours. So they've been referred, they come in for a new patient, uh, consult, they sit down with the doctor, they kind of discuss where they're at in their fertility treatment, Mm -hmm. whether they've had some preliminary test done or not, you know, how long they've been trying, um, if they've had babies before and, you know, you, we touched on a way in the beginning, but sometimes people have been able to conceive, deliver a child and now they're trying for the second and they can't figure out what the heck's going on. So there's a lot of kind of background information that goes into it. Um, and then we start with the basics. We draw blood work, um, Day three labs is mm-hmm. when you're on your cycle. The third day is when we really get a, go- get a good idea of, you know, where some of your levels are at as far as hormones. Right. And we can kind of see and determine if there's some issues there. We always do a semen analysis because as we just talked about, it can be the only problem sometimes, um, mm-hmm. or it can be part of the factors that are leading into infertility. And then the doctor will kind of sit down, you know, once we get those results, we'll talk about next steps. I mean, he might think that you're totally capable of doing an intercourse cycle, which is just highly monitored, um, a little bit of an oral drug and an injection to force that ovulation, really keep it very timed. Mm -hmm. So we know we're getting into the optimum window. Um, And then we tell you exactly when to go home and have sex. Um, That would kind of be the lowest totem pole starting point for some couples. Um, IUI, which is an in-office mm-hmm. uh, procedure, which is where the man would give us a sample of his semen. And instead of looking at it and, you know, counting and doing all that stuff under a microscope, like the, he may have already had done before, you know, he may have passed the test. He has good semen. Now he's giving us a sample that we, as the nurse are going to take, and we're going to concentrate it down. We're going to extract all the extra fluid and come around it. And we're going to, concentrate those cells so we have a very tiny amount that we take a catheter through the cervix and kind of shoot into the uterus of the woman we Mm -hmm. do this after she has taken medications to really prime her lining you know really make that uterus wall ready to accept a good sperm Um, we want to make sure that she ovulates at the correct time and that one's kind of the intermediate level you're still doing injections you're still coming in every day to every other day for a vaginal ultrasound, which we put a probe in the woman's vagina and count her follicles, which is the little houses that the eggs live in inside each ovary. And we measure them and we kind of determine when she's going to ovulate. And then we give her more medication to really tell her when she's going to ovulate and we introduce sperm at the correct time. Many people can get pregnant that way. Um, If there's a bigger underlying problem, then we move to IVF which is kind of the Petri dish of fertility Mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah. Um, It's the much more expensive, of course, but we pump the woman with drugs. In this case, we're trying to get as many eggs as possible. I mean, we just want so many options. Yeah. (laughs) But in a normal cycle, you're releasing one egg a month, right? If everything's normal, you're releasing one. In this instance, like I said, way earlier in this, podcast is we've had women come through and produce 30 to 40 eggs and it's crazy I mean imagine your hormones with that 
they tell me they can literally feel their ovaries just bloated inside their body. And, you know, we go in, you go in under anesthesia at the appropriate time. And the doctor literally sucks out each little egg, puts it in a Petri dish. Um, Not all of them will be mature, but the ones that are will introduce your partner's sperm, the best looking one. And we'll kind of watch them culture over the next five days. And we call our patients with updates um, almost every day, not every single day. And then if they do the genetic testing, we call them as soon as we get those results and let them know, hey, you went through all this trouble. Here's how many you can actually transfer and have a possibility of having success. Have you had some that have zero? Yes. And in those cases, the doctor calls them. It's very heartbreaking because some of them, it's just these patients who, you know, they've been through the ringer and you love them and you just want them to have a chance. And for them to go through everything and have no viable embryos is just, oh my God. And it's one of those things too. If they didn't test the embryo, right? If they didn't do that genetic test, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. We would have gone through there's a lot more that goes into transferring the embryo. There's a lot more medications and timelines and, you know, things like that we would have gone through and transferred and it would not have flourished. So, you know, going back to that genetic testing, it can be very expensive. Um, I know in general for us, it's about $4,000 for just eight embryos. And yeah, most, um, most insurances don't cover that unless you have a known genetic disorder that you're testing for. But if you're just doing it to do it, it's, it's kind of pricey. But if you think about if you weren't to do it and then you were to go through and transfer these unknowingly abnormal embryos, they're not going to make it. Right. You're going to go through cycle after cycle. It's just. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. I feel like you're going to be out of money somewhere. But if you do, you know, you go through, you get pregnant, whether it's an intercourse cycle or an IUI cycle or an IVF cycle, if our patients become pregnant, we monitor them for the first 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in once a week for a, all of our ultrasounds are vaginal. So a probe goes in, scans around, and, you know, the doctor will measure the gestational sac, the yolk sac, and the fetus. Uh, we'll see heartbeat and, you know, about nine to 10 weeks, we'll graduate our patient and they go to Kendra. They are now kind of like a normal walking around um, pregnant woman, which was their goal. But some of our patients are so terrified to leave us because, you know, they work so hard to get to that point. And then for us to just kind of be like, that's it. Yeah. You're not going to be, you're not going to have all these appointments anymore. Cause how often do you see pregnant women once they're pregnant? So it's very, dependent on the individual like if they have a known history of miscarriage we see them actually at the six week mark normally we wouldn't see a newly pregnant patient until the eight week mark um which is for multiple reasons because on an ultrasound truly we can't really detect a heartbeat until the the fetus is about six weeks along So it's kind of frightening for patients to come in sooner than that, because sometimes we can't detect a heartbeat and that freaks people out when in turn, it could be absolutely 100% normal. We just can't detect a heartbeat because it's too early. So that's why we choose to wait around the eight week mark. We can hear a very, very strong heartbeat. You know, you've kind of made it to the point where if a miscarriage is an early miscarriage is going to happen you've made it to that window where it's where it's more than likely not going to 
um, unless you're going to have, you know, a miscarriage in, during the first trimester or early second. Um, but yeah, when they, when they call us, they've been cleared by you guys. And we typically base scheduling an OB appointment by the first day of your last menstrual period. We're about to get all into the female evaluation, dive into cycle tracking, hormones, all of that in a little bit. But the cycle day one is the first day of your period, essentially. So typically on a normal patient that hasn't been seeing a fertility specialist, we're like, oh, when's the first day of your last menstrual period? We use that to calculate out how far along you are. Um, But in terms of fertility patients, a lot of the times embryo transfer is actually the day that we use, as well as the patient already knows how far along they are and they have a due date when they're coming from a fertility clinic. So because of what Lexi's saying, they're getting weekly ultrasounds, they're monitoring their patients. So by the time they come to us, They've already been, you know, on this weekly schedule, but after that typical pregnancy outline is you get seen at eight weeks, again at 12, then again at 16, and then again at 20, which is where we typically do the anatomy scan, which is where we make sure all of baby's organs and bodily systems are growing and forming properly. After that, they come in, I believe for a 24 week checkup. And then a 28-week, which is where we do a ton of testing, including a screening for gestational diabetes. And then after that, um, I want to say they get seen, I could totally be butchering this, 30, then 32, 34, 36. And then after 36, it's weekly. So, but I've seen patients where we see them weekly because they're such a high-risk case. So it, it's very dependent. That is just the average pregnancy schedule. And you're not going to have an ultrasound at every single appointment either once you're past that clearing from a fertility specialist either. You only really have an ultrasound to begin the pregnancy, the anatomy scan, and then later on in the pregnancy when you're about to deliver to make sure that the baby's in the proper position, such as head down, facing towards your bum, and it's going to come out properly. So that's how we figure out if babies are vertex which, or, um, what is the other word? Vertex or breach. There we go. Vertex is proper positioning their head down. Breach is face up, or they could even be transverse. They're lying sideways. Uh, but we're going to, we'll talk about that in the pregnancy episode. That's not really infertility. That's just to answer your question. It's very dependent on the individual themselves. So But on average, we would only see them about a month later, which can be terrifying. They're going down from being seen weekly to now I'm only going to get seen once a month, really. Yeah. I mean, it's like the goal that they want to get to so badly. They want to graduate. They want to, um, you know, leave with a almost halfway through their first trimester stable pregnancy. But then when we tell them, you know, to move on to their OB and to stop a lot of the medications they've been taking, it's very terrifying they've invested so much like they it's hard for them to picture a life where they go multiple weeks in between without knowing how things are going and I can imagine so that would I mean I do have patients call in a lot of the times if you know they are an IVF patient or IUI patient what have you sometimes they just prefer to come in and be seen sooner but the doctor addresses them 
with that at their appointments. The more that, you know, they become comfortable with their new OB-GYN or maybe their previous OB-GYN, but they've been seeing the fertility specialist, the doctors are great at making you feel comfortable, understanding the frustration and the hardship you've been through. And of course, the nurses understand as well. So understandably, every single time I have a patient call in where they've had an embryo transfer, been through all of this process, I take that situation very, very seriously. I don't undermine it. If they have a concern, no doubt. I'm like, let's bring you in. That'll ease your mind. It'll ease mine. The doctor can see you and they're usually really grateful for that. So it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to turn you away by any means. If you want to come in, we'll get you in. To kind of jump off of what Lexia is saying, to start things off with the female evaluation, we've already talked about the male evaluation. Let's first talk about ovulatory problems. The vast majority of women with regular cycles, which is a period every 22 to 35 days, are indeed ovulating. This ovulatory problems can be determined by hormonal testing. Most common and prevalent ones tested. Are you peeing? <laughs> I was going to warn you, but I, I just really had to pee. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is fitting because we're talking about luteinizing hormone, which can be a urine test. So. Very time supportingly, Lexi. Listen, I just love the female reproductive system. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't gonna flush, but now I will. The justification. <laughs> okay, well, luteinizing hormone. Two weeks into a woman's cycle, a surge in LH causes the ovary ovaries well to release an egg during ovulation. If fertilization occurs, LH will stimulate the corpus luatum, which produces progesterone to st- sustain the pregnancy. This hormone shows up in high levels just before you ovulate. It can actually cause infertility in both elevation and reduced levels. In women, LH levels that are too high are often connected to polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which creates inappropriate testosterone levels. Some other genetic conditions like Turner syndrome can cause high levels of the hormone as well. People with these conditions are often unable to reproduce, whereas too little LH stops ovulation in women. Next hormone that is a blood test, not a urine test, cue the flushing toilet, (laughs) is progesterone, which I just briefly touched on talking about LH. It's typically drawn on cycle day 21 or 23 at my clinic in particular, but it provides the most accurate readings and interpretations. Increases of this hormone in particular tells us if you have ovulated or not. Progesterone's role as well helps build up the lining of the uterus, making implantation able to happen if it does happen. Next hormone, follicle stimulating hormone or FSH is also drawn by blood. It triggers your ovaries to prepare an egg for the release each month. It gets checked early in your menstrual cycle, often day three, like Lexi mentioned, day three labs. High FSH can mean lower fertility in women. In fact, elevated FSH, especially later in life, helps a doctor to be able to tell a woman if she's menopausal or not. Fun fact. Another hormone, anti-malarian hormone, this one is one that I want to have drawn, or AMH. Mm-hmm. It's drawn by blood. This hormone is released by a woman's eggs, and these levels go down as her egg count declines with age. So in a sense, it can provide us a good idea of how many eggs a woman has left 
and how she compares with other women of the same age. Yeah. So AMH is like a, it's a big one for us. Um, We like to see anything greater than one. You have pretty good potential, Um, but we have a lot of women come in that have, you know, 0.2 or something like that. And that can really correlate with a very low ovarian reserve. And, you know, with some women, it makes sense. You know, they're coming in 30 plus years, closer to 40. We would expect them to have lower AMH. We have some who are younger, younger than me or you. And mm-hmm. when they have a low AMH, it's it really puts things into perspective. It is only a blood test. So the best indicator that correlates with this would to have a vaginal ultrasound and to scan the ovaries and kind of see exactly how many um, eggs or follicles you can see in each ovary. Um, But a lot Mm -hmm. of times it's a pretty good indicator. That's crazy. Last hormone. Now I've heard people don't really have this done, but I know our doctors at my particular clinic do like to do this as well. Um, Thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH. Believe it or not, if your thyroid is not functioning properly, it can interfere with fertility in the aspect that it can mess up your menstrual cycle. So it makes it harder to decide, you know, cycle day one, what day of the menstrual cycle are we on? What day of the cycle are we on? Which can highly go into rhythm tracking, cycle tracking, as Lexi previously mentioned. Yeah, we check thyroid. We're pretty big sticklers on it. So people get very confused when we call them and tell them they need to start Synthroid, which is a thyroid medication. Um, Mm -hmm. But both hypo or hyper elevated or decreased levels can cause ovulation dysfunction. Uh, yep. So we do, we do monitor that. Um, it, I get why it's confusing to patients because that seems like something your primary care physician should be watching, but mm-hmm. it does have, it, it's, it's a hormone. It's produced by the pituitary gland. And so it, in a lot of instances, if there's an elevation or a um, low level there, it can correlate with having problems getting pregnant or staying pregnant. Right. And that can be the main culprit of what your problem is for some people. So I definitely, I've seen this tested a lot and it's tested throughout the pregnancy as well, because, you know, if it gets too low or too high during the pregnancy can have effect on that as well. And that's something we'll talk talk about in the pregnancy episode. But what do you ask is the treatment for ovulatory problems? The answer to that is called ovulation stimulation. Lexi talked about this earlier. And essentially, the more a woman is ovulating, the more eggs are released and the more likely she will be able to get pregnant. This also makes it easier for a couple to track when they should be having intercourse. Use of fertility medications called gonadotropins. How do you say it? (laughs) Gonadotropins. Gonadotropins and anti-estrogens can be used to stimulate ovulation. I'm going to let Lexi talk about these drugs in particular. These, besides two of them I don't interfere with at all I don't really know a whole lot about them so I'm gonna let Lexi inform us on these on these drugs yeah so if you're coming to us if you're coming to a fertility clinic um, and we decide to do a cycle you're mostly going to be taking injectable drugs which would be your follicle stimulating hormones um, the only thing we do orally and this is again just clinic based is Famara or Letrozole 
we mm-hmm. don't do Clomid, which is a common one that people know. Um, my doctor just believes if that's all you need, you can do that through your OBGYN. Um, right, which is one that I'm familiar with. Right. I see Clomid prescribed all the time, rarely Famara. It's more so Clomid. Right. So if you're coming to us, if you've made that step, you need something a little bit more, um, you might be taking Famara, but we rarely do Famara alone. If you're taking Famara, it's an oral pill to help with stimulation, you're also going to be taking an injectable medication. All of our injectable medications, when it comes to growing those follicles, making as many eggs, or at least one good egg, depending on what cycle you're going through, are going to be um, subcutaneous injections, or for us, we just say tummy injections. Um, mm-hmm. On average, you know, an IUI cycle, which is kind of like that turkey baster in office, we concentrate the your partner's sperm and we inject it inside of you or donor sperm. You know, we do have a lot of um, mm-hmm. same sex couples. Medications for a cycle like that will run you about $500 if you're paying out of pocket. So it's not terrible, but that's just for the medications. It's not including your office visits, um, you know, the cycle itself, any of that. If we're going to IVF, if we are trying to create as many eggs as possible in each ovary to take you to retrieval, put you under anesthesia and take out as many to introduce to sperm in a Petri dish, those medications for a typical cycle, this is just one cycle, if you're paying out of pocket, is anywhere from four to $6,000. Oh my God. This does not include your office visits, your blood draws, um, the time you spend at the surgery center, your anesthesia, any of that. This is purely medication. These medications are not cheap. Some it doesn't sound it. Yeah, some insurances. Is dollar sign. Yeah, <laughs> some insurances do cover medications. Um, again, you have to have a pretty good fertility coverage benefit. Um, and this is not guaranteeing that you get your baby out of it. This could just be one cycle. And then, you know, like we touched on earlier, you take it to the genetic testing and you have no normals. So you spent a lot of money on medication, all the office visits, everything we put you through. And unfortunately, you have nothing normal. So your only option is to either give up, which sucks, Um or to restem, try again, you know, pay all this money again for medications, the office visits, the retrieval, um, or worst case scenario for some people would be to have an egg donor. Right. Golly, I just can't imagine. And, you know, going through all this process as well, anytime you're stimulating your ovaries, trying to get as many eggs out as possible, is it true that that increases your risk for having a multiple gestational pregnancy, which is more babies than one happening at a time. So um, our doctor in specific, if you're doing an IUI, right? So you're doing that in-house, uh-huh. we inject the sperm into you back to the turkey baster. Uh, we are still growing follicles. We're growing eggs. Our doctor is very particular. He will not let you go through. He will cancel your cycle if you have more than two mature eggs on the screen because he does not want you to have multiples. So he likes you to have one to two. If you have two, it does not mean both will release and that you will have twins. It just gives you a higher hope of getting one out of those two. Um, Right. You know, anything that is multiple gestation or twin triplet, anything like that is considered high risk pregnancy. We're not in the business to create high risk pregnancies. We're in the business to 
give you, you know, one baby. So for us, if you have done the genetic testing, you know that you are transferring a completely normal genetic embryo. He will only transfer one. He's not going to transfer two. Even if we have so many couples come in who just so badly think it would be really cute to have twins, which I'm not, I'm not against. I would love twins, but it it's putting the patient at high risk for if it happens naturally, so be it. But to make that choice, uh, we just, we won't do that. Um, so there is the chance though, said no. you place one embryo, even if it's genetically normal, we have mm-hmm. recently had not quite a few. I mean, the statistics on this are pretty low, but we have had that one embryo decide to split once it's implanted and now you have identical twins are alas you know there's <laughs> only so much science can do before the body just takes over so um it, it's possible for you to get multiple gestations especially out of IUI that would be the most common right. if you're doing that in-house turkey baster and you have one or two maybe three follicles that are close to maturity when you trigger your ovulation or the release of those eggs and we introduce the sperm Mm -hmm. and then you've got some strong swimmers and maybe one to two or all three happen to fertilize we might see multiples um with ivf it's more rare but it can right we can put in one single embryo and it can split and now you have an identical twin uh gestational pregnancy that is crazy the body works in mysterious ways but fascinating ways um, talking about, you know, IUI, from what I understand, we'll move on to the next problem. It's called cervical mucus problems. So a few days before your ovulation occurs, your cervical mucus is supposed to thin and become more watery to allow for sperm to not be blocked off. A little gross, but you can monitor this by assessing, assessing the vaginal discharge. Grab a little bit of the mucus. Place it between your thumb and your pointer finger and stretch the specimen out. It's supposed to stretch at least 6.5 centimeters precisely. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to whip out my ruler <laughs> doing that. This one I was definitely interested okay. to hear you talk about because we don't talk about <sighs> this. You know, I mean, if you're coming to an infertility clinic, you're kind of beyond testing your cervical mucus. But I've recently learned through friends getting married that they get kind of coached on this. This is the natural way of yes. doing it. I just think it's. Yes, this is how I have so many conversations on the daily on the phone about this. They're talking about their mucus. I'm like, what? What is my job? I'm sitting here talking to you about your your stretchy discharge. It's just so wild to me. But <laughs> I just like, I mean, I started, you know, full disclosure, paying attention to mine more. I'm on birth control. I've been on birth control since I was like 17. Yeah. Um, but there is still the time of the month or when it gets closer to the ovulation okay. that it's different and now mm-hmm. I've started to try and pay attention and learn about it but it's just still a wild concept to go up in there I and scoop and kind of just play with it in your fingers or just yeah I just that's just not something I do as a hobby personally <laughs> well we're also not <laughs> just play desperately with, trying just play to get pregnant so I just don't know <laughs> what the right answer. maybe I'll do that one day I don't know not now though <laughs> I do other things <laughs> but a treatment of inadequate cervical mucus could be you know treating an underlying underlying cervical or vaginal infection a lot of the times if you have bacterial yeast anything like that going on internally it can change your discharge so treating it with an antibiotic 
what have you can fix the problem. But another treatment is washing sperm called a sperm wash. I know, <laughs> very clever. And IUI or intrauterine insemination turkey baster. And I'm going to let Leslie talk about sperm washing because I know nothing about that, but I'm highly interested Yeah, because sperm it. washing is different than a semen analysis. Semen analysis, you ejaculate in a cup, you give it to a scientist, they truly look at, like we were talking about earlier, the shape, how many are swimming, how many are moving, all that stuff. And a sperm wash, we kind of already know you've got You've got the cojones, right? You've got the the parts. You've, you're making enough. We're confident <laughs> that if we take this sample and kind of concentrate it down, we can most likely get the result we want. So in this instance, you know, the woman has gone through the medications. She's injected herself. She's grown those eggs. We're at a point that they're mature. We want to release them and introduce the sperm at the right time. So now the man is giving it his specimen yet again in a cup. And they drop it off at our office about an hour before the procedure. And we take it. And <laughs> I actually like doing this. And again, it's probably just because it's more scientific. It's not so much what I'm playing with. Because sometimes you open. She likes playing with the demon guys. <laughs> sometimes you open the it. sample cup. <laughs> and sometimes it's fine, right? You're like, whatever. It's a semen. It is what it is. I'm a nurse. Sometimes you open it. And it just has that total smell of like come oh. and it's so <laughs> nasty like you just get that whiff and you're like oh oh <laughs> I didn't get any pleasure out of op- like you know what I'm dealing with right now and no, it's not a candle you would buy <laughs> no. per se <laughs> no um and then some you know I don't even know how to fully explain it you, you pull it up with a syringe right sometimes it's nice and thin and normal and you don't have to worry about it sometimes it's a little thicker there's some clumps you kind of have to play with it with the syringe to thin it out otherwise it won't spin down correctly um so that's always fun you know you're just playing with someone else's sperm and you're again getting no pleasure out of it so (laughs) essentially you pull it up you put it into a medium Um, You put it in a centrifuge, which mixes it down really fast to a certain degree, and it creates a little uh, pellet at the bottom of the, you know, you pull it up, you put it in the medium, you put it in the centrifuge, which spins it around really, really fast. So all the the semen, the cells are going to, they naturally, in that machine, so super naturally, concentrate at the bottom of the test tube. You pull it out and you've got this little pellet at the bottom and you take out all the extra. So what we're doing here is we're concentrating the semen, the cells. We're taking out the cum and the the you know the liquid, the liquid part, part the medium that we don't need. We're really so sometimes men come in and they give us, you know, three to four milliliters of a specimen no matter what size they give us, we concentrate it down to 0.5 milliliters to be injected back in the woman. Um, and then in the interim, we do put it under a microscope and we just kind of count and make sure we still have moving sperm. We still have a good quality that we're going to put back into her. And so scientifically, I do like that part as a woman playing with sperm that not my man's. I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> you know, some days are good. I've been like playing with my man. <laughs> Usually I get some pleasure before I have to touch sperm. <laughs> so just to be at work and open up a just 
raw form and you're like hello ryan mm. how are you today yeah look at hello, look at Brad. your day <laughs> <laughs> look at you go look at look at that oh just a small bit <laughs> you must have been nervous oh my gosh I, I do have to say one time so again timing is very precise in fertility treatment um and we had a woman going through iui so she was going to come in and get turkey basted with her man semen uh we asked for the specimen from the man to be there about an hour early and uh, th- that gives us time to do everything i just discussed like you know spinning it down counting it really concentrating it making it perfect to go back inside and hopefully get pregnant and we had this couple call and the specimen was supposed to be there already and she's like he can't he can't do it like he basically had stage fright he couldn't get off into the cup like he was supposed to and she was getting so pissed she's like I've just been injecting myself and we've been through all these appointments and this is the one thing he had to do. And I was like, Oh girl, I mean, I feel you. I would be <laughs> whiskey dick, but uh, <laughs> whiskey dick, but medical. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe he had been drinking flimsy dick. Um, you know, if anyone's curious about the ending of the story, once the phone call happened, I don't know if that was just so embarrassing enough, but he, he produced, he produced, he produced. And the specimen did arrive. I don't remember if they got pregnant or not, but attaboy. Yeah. There you but go. But then you wonder too, back on the you know, the psychological factor, did she come in stressed? You know, everything yeah. got delayed just a little bit. He or sounded she... very stressed. Yeah. She was pissed <laughs> off for sure. As his his little man was more stressed than anything. Like what what other <laughs> you had one job, you know? Little Willie. Come on. <laughs> you were supposed to do your job. You didn't. But yeah, essentially, you know, amongst other things that sperm washing and IUI can be used for, if a woman consistently has problems with the mucus being too thick, we can use washed sperm and IUI to surpass that mucus, go up past the cervix, and then release the sperm from there. So that's why that can be used. But amongst other things this same process can be used for um continuing on with the evaluation of female related causes we're going to move on to anatomical problems most common things i'm just gonna there are multiple things but the most common one is tubal occlusion which may occur due to inflammation of the fallopian tubes congenital defects mucus plugs again the mucus problem endometriosis or a previous infection. Tubal occlusion can be detected by undergoing the previously mentioned HSG imaging test. In most, case, in most cases, surgical repair and the opening of the fallopian tubes called a microsurgical tuboplasty is effective. About 60 to 80% of women who are able to, about 60 to 80% of women are able to get pregnant after having this done. However, at least 10% of pregnancies after repair can potentially be ectopic, which are pregnancies outside of the uterus, usually in one of the fallopian tubes, and can be a medical emergency. And last but not least, peritoneal problems can also contribute to the female-related issues with fertility. We already talked about endometriosis, and this is the most common finding in this category. It can interfere with tubal motility, cause tubal obstruction, or cause adhesions that inhibit the egg from reaching the uterus. If endometriosis, adhesions, or endometriomas 
which is a cyst caused by uterine tissue growing there. Laparoscopic surgery can be performed. However, surgical removal of endometriosis can cause harm to one's ovarian reserve. So one, you're already hit with the flag of endometriosis, which can cause fertility issues. But if you choose to go through treatment of your endometriosis, you can harm your ovarian reserve. So you just, you can't win there, mm-hmm. which sucks. So like we previously said, unexplained cause of infertility is prevalent in about 10 to 15% of couples who have documented ovulation, normal lab results, normal semen analyses, a normal HSG, etc. And they will still experience infertility. And the doctors cannot tell you why. Just absolutely heartbreaking for me. I can't imagine going through all that Lexi has informed us about only to be told we have no idea what's going on. I know. And essentially, you know, sometimes it's just, you might need to try again. You know, we might have to go through a whole nother cycle or it comes down to, I don't know what's more heartbreaking. You know, you just don't know until you're in the situation, but some of these women are told either they need a gestational carrier. So they need another woman to carry their child. You know, they might be able to make the eggs and have their husband's sperm introduced to it, but now they need another woman to carry it because there's potentially something wrong with the uterus or they're just having these recurrent miscarriages and we can't explain it. And, mm-hmm. you know, or we, we're just not getting any normal eggs. So now maybe you need an egg donor. You need someone younger, fitter, healthier to come in, give you her DNA, and then you'll try to mm-hmm. carry it. I mean, it's just... Or vice versa. You need a sperm donor as well. Yeah. Because yeah, the we, man may be having the problem. Yeah. We do have many clients who have to go through sperm donors, even though they have a perfectly healthy man next to them. Um, I just, totally. that's hard. Um, and then, you know, we haven't really touched on same sex couples. We get a ton of that, especially here in Austin, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, for that, most of the time, the women are relatively healthy, young. They just have their female partner. So they have to choose who's going to go through and, you know, sometimes they just do an IUI with donor sperm, you know, we turkey based around they move on. Uh, Sometimes they want to kind of do so that both partners play a part. One of the women will grow her eggs, you know, go through that IVF process, the sperm they introduce is donor. And then Mm -hmm. the partner will be the one to carry the baby. Yeah. So it's cool. Yeah. So both play a a very important part. Um, and then we have men as well who both donate their sperm to an egg donor or not donate their sperm, but they introduce their sperm to an egg donor of their choice. And then, you know, for them, unfortunately, they also have to choose a gestational carrier. Um, here in right. Texas, it's illegal to have, um, it, it, I don't know how to explain this, a gestational carrier is different than a surrogate. A surrogate. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't learn until I went into infertility. A surrogate is someone who basically, if you took your partner's sperm or if you were in a uh, same-sex couple and one of the guys mm-hmm. decided to put his sperm into a woman and use her egg and then she carries the baby to term and gives you the baby, that's illegal in Texas because it's her DNA still. Wow. So you can only do a surrogacy, which it's none of her DNA. It could be a donor mm-hmm. egg. It could be you and your wife's egg, it could be whatever. She just grows, she's just the oven. All she does is grow it. She like- has no genetic ties. There's a lot of legal that still goes into it, but. Right. I mean, even if it were legal, I don't think I could do that. That's half of me. 
Um, well, if anyone is watching Little Fires Anywhere on Hulu, <laughs> that's <laughs> what's happening. Volumes to you. Speaking. I mean, how could you? How could you carry? I mean, there's people out there and bless them. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. We have a but few. Who, if you can. Yeah. I just have attachment issues. No, we have a few that um, one of our gestational carriers right now, she's done it. Gosh. It, I think it's been like five or six times. And she, she just loves it. Her body's healthy. You know, she passes all the tests every time. And she, she just feels... She children. Yeah. Literally, yeah. Well, five children. And she has her own. So that's the thing. This whole time, she's what? doing this for another couple while she's raising her own kids. And yes, of course, they get paid. But, yeah. you know, she just felt like it was... I mean, that's beautiful. Her calling. Sense that she's helping these people. And... But also, I... I just willingly couldn't have a baby that's half my, literally my child. And it's not really adoption. I'm just willingly giving that child away. So out of curiosity, for them giving yeah, let me ask you this. If, cause I've thought about this working in this industry now, many times, would you rather have you and your partner's genetic DNA and someone else carries your baby? Or would you rather have a donor egg for some reason you can't produce eggs but you get to carry the baby mm-hmm. and deliver I think um first to answer this one I would address it with my partner if I couldn't conceive like if I were the problem per se and they want a kid that is genetically half theirs then I would address that but me personally I I don't have to have something that is genetically mine. I am a pro adoption person. I think that that's wonderful. There's so many kids out there that, that need help. Um, Me personally, I don't think I would go through with this, you know, whether I'm getting an egg donor and I'm carrying the pregnancy or, you know, I'm having a sperm donor, what have, what have you in this type of situation? I don't think that I, I could go through with that personally, unless my partner just was very adamant about having something that is half genetically one of ours. I'm perfectly open to the idea of adopting if we can't have a kid on our own. I'm not opposed to that at all. Yeah. What about you? I'm definitely open to adoption. I think it's amazing. Um, but, you know, if I'm being honest in this situation, if it were either I carry and it's someone else's egg, so not my DNA by any means, but it's still my partner's or right, it's my DNA, my partner's DNA, someone else is carrying my baby to term. I think between those two situations, you would rather do it. I think I'd rather be pregnant. Yeah. Which I totally get. I mean, I don't know what the repercussions would be like down the road to think like it's, you know, you wonder as it gets older, if you'd be like, oh, they're so much like their dad or they have something, you know, that annoys you. And you're like, oh, is that because (laughs) is that their mom? Is that that donor (laughs) DNA bullshit? Like That's not me. (laughs) I, I think it would fuck with you no matter what, but. I don't I know. Agree. I, I just, I just always, as a woman, I, mean, I wanted to be carry. more attached. Yeah. I think you'd be more attached and you'd actually get to experience the pregnancy 
and or not to take away from adoption that that would not be any less of your child than right. you actually carrying one but I do feel like there's a bond that comes with pregnancy and with motherhood I agree but would it be nice to I mean there's so many pros and cons would it be nice to know you're having a baby but you can still have your glass of wine you don't have to restrict your diet or anything and you don't have to push it out of your freaking vagina and have stitches from your asshole up like I don't know it's hard I I just just, you just don't know until you're in it and we're talking about it but I hope I'm never in it I hope you're never in it I know but likewise it's common I don't know how I would make that decision but again you know if I were on my own like let's say you know I'm single and have been for a while if I were to never get married I you know make it to 35 which is decreasing my chances of having kids on my own I don't necessarily know if I would get a sperm donor and try to get pregnant on my own I think that I would just look more into adoption personally just coming from an OB-GYN perspective I've seen both the the proud and exciting moments of pregnancy but I've also seen terrible horrific um, consequences of being pregnant and delivering which are terrifying to me so I'm perfectly fine not being pregnant to be honest that's just me though some people are like absolutely not I need to be pregnant at least one time in my life and that's that's just not how I am man I just I don't know there's so many there's so many options and so much and of course both partners have to be taken into consideration for that but All right. Well, to end things here, thank you for, you know, sitting in on this episode that's gone by and lasted about 10 years. We have a special segment of every episode. It's called Am I Overreacting, which is where I answer questions or concerns that maybe weren't addressed earlier in the episode or that I feel that needed more, needed to be talked about or emphasized more. And the first one is how can I find out when is the best fertile time of the month for me? I mentioned this in the birth control episode that we would be talking about fertility awareness methods in this episode, and here we are. So fertility awareness methods are a natural family planning strategy that women can use to help either prevent pregnancy or aid with conceiving. It involves tracking your menstrual cycle and developing a better awareness of your body and using a variety of non-pharmaceutical methods to detect ovulation. To touch back up on fundamentals, cycle day one is the first day of your period. Ovulation occurs on average 12 to 16 days after your first day of your period, and your period returns if pregnancy does not occur in 14 days after ovulation. On average, women are the most fertile during the five days before ovulation, the day of ovulation itself, and within the 12 to 24 hours after ovulation. Remember, sperm can live for five to seven days, but the egg only has a fertilization window of 24 hours. So that is why timed intercourse is so important when it comes to fertility and infertility. But the most common methods that make up fertility awareness, one is calendar rhythm method. You use your past menstrual cycles to estimate the time of your ovulation. When used on its own, this is the least reliable method of birth control or conceivement. It should be avoided if your menstrual cycles are shorter than 26 days or longer than 32 days, AKA you have an irregular period. Another method is tracking your temperature or your basal body temperature for several cycles by using a thermometer to take your temperature before you get out of bed each morning due to hormonal surges 
your temperature goes right up after ovulation. So you would know that you need to bang it out when you spike a temp. (laughs) Another one previously mentioned, cervical mucus method. You track the color, thickness, and texture of your mucus to monitor your fertility. Your cervical mucus becomes thinner, slipperier. I don't even know if that's a word. More slippery (laughs) and stretchy when you ovulate. Tracking your cervical mucus will require some practice. Again, that's just not something I'm going to be doing. Playing with my mucus like I'm playing in a sandbox. (laughs) That's, I mean, I just, the first time I heard about it, I, what? Okay, do you guys want? I'm I'm curious. (laughs) You might need to cut this out. One of the most like embarrassing stories after moving in with my partner and we have one shower is I personally always use summer's eve to mm-hmm. clean my nether regions and I kind of do like a little finger scoop just every time I shower like yep. mucus is down there clean it out whatever <laughs> must have been a certain time of the month where it was much thicker and it didn't go down the drain and so <laughs> at one point in the morning uh, my boyfriend came out and he's like what is this and he literally had it on his fucking finger and I was like how do I explain to you that this is my vaginal discharge that didn't (laughs) rinse down the sink like it was supposed to like (laughs) are we still in a relationship I don't know I've never I've touched your I've touched your sperm you've touched my my mucus I mean it truly seems fair, but in the moment it was mortifying and I cannot lie for the life of me. So I couldn't be like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's like soap residue. It's like, um, please put that down right now. <laughs> oh my God. I can just see his face being like throwing it on the ground. <laughs> like, what is this? And I was like, why would you, in what mind ever would, would you, you pick, pick that up and be like, what is why this? Why don't he just come get you and say, what is this? Why wouldn't Why you just you spray it, it down the freaking drain, like all my hair goes, like everything else? That's what a shower's for—to rinse you and clean you. Don't exactly. Moral of the story: like Don't ever pick up anything in your shower. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's just common sense. Poor guy. I wish I was a better liar. I could have just—I could have said many things, and I was just like, "Oh no! Oh, oh no!" Oh but- God, that's so funny though. <laughs> I'm so glad you shared that. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know, first time living with someone, here we are. We're still together go. for those wondering, but so mucus is not a relationship killer, to say the <laughs> least. But to put everything together, it's called the symptothermal method, which is where you use the three previously mentioned methods together. And this makes fertility awareness the most effective. You should track at least six to 12 menstrual cycles, six to 12 months, by the way, before you begin to rely on these measures for contraception. So kind of ties into this trying for a year thing. Mm -hmm. You can already be doing these things right now when you're not even trying to have a baby. That way, when it comes time, you've already been doing it. You know your body well. Like Lexi said, she cleans herself out. So she's already (laughs) familiar with her mucus. So (laughs) Maybe just start tracking your temperature. You already know your cycle. You're good to go whenever it comes time. There's also, I don't know, um, there's ovulation predictor kits that we tell some yeah. of our patients to use. Um, and it, it, I'm not super familiar on them. I don't know if you guys, you know, suggest them more than we do. 
Um, but they're just over the counter, you know, HEB, CVS, Walgreens. Mm-hmm. I assume they're at all those places, but I don't even know. Do you pee on it? Do you know? I don't that? know either. I really don't. We just tell people to go buy them, but it's sad. I don't know how to use That's it. That's exactly the same thing we do. I'm like, if they're there, go buy it. Read the directions because I don't know. <laughs> we tell them to call if it's positive. You know, we can really time yeah. things off of that. If they want to go the most natural route that they can. Um, That's definitely one of them. For sure. Um, next question that we got. How successful is IVF? And to answer this question, it's important to understand that pregnancy rates are not the same as live birth rates. So these people might be pregnant, but we're more focusing on how many of these pregnancies resulted in a live baby. So in the U.S., the live birth rate for each IVF cycle started is approximately 41 to 43% for women under the age of 35 33 to 36% for women ages 35 to 37, 23 to 27% for women 38 to 40, and 13 to 18 for women over the ages of 40. Yeah, I think this would be a really great time to kind of butt in and talk about SART, which is um, the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. So this is anyone who is at the point where they are considering or they know already that they have to go through basically an IVF cycle. So SART is an online, you can go SART.org. And this is where I, I'm in charge for my clinic to put in the data from the year previous about how many patients went through four IVF cycles, how many were successful and stuff like that. So if you go to this website and I just kind of explored it for the most part today, I've always gone on to it to enter data. I've never gone on to mm-hmm. it, you know, kind of the per- perspective of a patient. And you can go on and there's a tab literally called patients and you can go, they have um, facts and figures, videos, what is start, uh, fe- frequently asked questions, risks of IVF. And then there's a tab right next to it called IVF success. And so under this, you will find the 2017 and the 2018 preliminary data. So right now I'm entering data from 2019. So even though we're in 2020, Mm -hmm. you will not find 2019 data until later next year. But in this, you can click on that link. You can put in your zip code, pull up clinics in your area, see what their success rates are. Um, But there's also a link, which I didn't know existed, where you can predict my success. So if you click on that, it's going to pull you into and ask you a couple of questions. You know, if it's your first cycle, how old are you? What's your, uh, your height, your weight? Do you have uh, PCOS, which we touched on earlier, or polycystic mm-hmm. ovarian syndrome? Do you know your most recent AMH level, that level that kind of correlates with your ovarian reserve? Does your partner have problems with their sperm? Do you have unexplained infertility? Do you, have you ever had a baby um, delivered and now you can't explain why you can't have another one? So I went through this just out of curiosity and I answered everything basically no, right? I'm 29 years old. Um, I'm rather fit. I don't know. I don't have polys. I don't have PCOS. Um, I don't know about my AMH level. I've never tested it. I don't know about my partner's sperm. I've never tried to get pregnant. So I don't 
know what my fertility rate would be, but just in putting in basically no information, just my age, height, and weight, it told me for my first round of IVF, my average or possible success rate would be 59%. Oh my God. Isn't that wild? And, uh, you know, knowing this and being in this for about a year now, it's not that surprising. You know, we've talked about that genetic testing and how almost 70% of the embryos don't come back normal. It's crazy. It did say, you know, second round, which we do say there's, if you don't get pregnant your first round, second round Mm -hmm. is, you know, much more prevalent. So it did jump up from 59% to 79% for the second round. And then to, it even told me third round, which would be 88%. This is given, I don't know my AMH. I don't know if my uterus is a unicorn. I don't know, (laughs) you know, I've never had any testing done because I'm not trying to get pregnant. But so this is me saying, hey, I'm a normal 29 year old. um, And still my first round of IVF is less than 60%. That is insane. And that's 50 grand later to do another second round. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. So again, if anyone wants to look this up and just kind of out of curiosity and I don't want it to be discouraging, I hope that people, it helps them find a tool before they get, it's hard for people to reach out and ask questions and call clinics. So there's a lot of information on this website. It's called SART.org. That's S A R T or society for assistive reproductive technology dot org and I'm, I'm I'm impressed with their website I'm glad that we contribute that being said there are clinics you do you're not required to put your information in there so if you're looking online on this website trying to see any clinics in your area um, you might not see one that you either heard about or seen driving you know on 35 or Mopac or um, you're not required to enter your data into this system, but I know we personally do, and most should. It's it's a good tool. It's a good um, way to kind of find a good clinic, along with Yelp. We've had a lot of people come through just from Yelp. Um, mm-hmm. You know, social media is becoming bigger, and people promote that way. So if you're really looking for a clinic, your OB should be able to really direct you as well. I know we kind of do uh, luncheons and stuff just to get our name out there. So if there's a couple struggling, we hope that they suggest our name first. Um, Do you guys have a lot of clinics that you kind of regularly suggest to? Um, Yes. In particular, um, if you are in the Austin area, especially with the clinic that I say, I don't typically mention who I work for just to keep, you know, myself safe and patients that I might encounter safe. Um, but there is one fertility clinic in particular there. It's, um, I can't, it's the, I know you've heard of them. It's Dr. Cavusi and his sons, their fertility clinic. I know you know who I'm talking about. Okay. Um, I think theirs is Austin Fertility Institute. We refer a ton of people there. I will say, though, I've had a handful of patients come back to us after seeing the doctor you work for. After becoming pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've encountered a couple of your patients. I mean, you know, it's, it's so hard. And I kind of, 
alluded to this at some points where we even have patients come through and they're not being referred through OBGYNs anymore because they've actually gone through fertility treatment. Yeah. Um, They've gone through a different clinic and then they decide to leave and come to us or, you Mm -hmm. know, just move around. And it's not so much that they're unhappy with where they are, but again, this is so stressful and tiring and exhausting and just financially, mentally, physically, all of the things that after a few cycles, some people just need to like almost start fresh with a new clinic. And right. it's not even that they didn't like their doctor or their nurses or anything like that. It's that they just kind of want to start fresh and maybe get a second opinion ultimately, which most people should do when it comes to um, health problems. If they're kind of proceeding and not being fixed, it's not a bad idea to check in with another doctor or clinic. Yeah, or this. yeah so we've, we've had some come through um especially recently and kind of try to start over and sometimes it works sometimes it's just that fresh you know whether it's even just the office like it just it's it doesn't have the bad memories of negative pregnancy tests right you know the problems and this and that they they're just starting over and you know sometimes you and a physician just don't click it's simple as that and nothing nothing personal and sometimes just personalities clash or, you know, bedside manner isn't the best or what have you, your personality doesn't match, you know, with their rhythm of things or their opinions. So it's definitely, it goes both ways. Sometimes the doctors will even say, I don't feel that I'm a good match for you. Um, I feel like you would benefit going somewhere else. I've definitely been in situation, not myself, but I've been, I've seen situations like this where, you know, I, I take your health very seriously, but I don't think I'm the best doctor physician fit for you. I think someone else out there is a better fit. So that's amazing. I mean, that in itself declares a good doctor, even if they're saying they're not a good fit. Like, Right. I think the ability to say, Hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not the best for you. I can help you, but I can't help you. Right. Let me help you in a different way. So I think this actually, touching on that, I think this is a good window into the question of, do I have to wait until I'm ready to have children to actually do a fertility workup? And the answer is absolutely not. You can request basic fertility testing, such as the hormone levels previously mentioned, to your OB-GYN at any time. Like I could walk into my OB-GYN and be like, hey, I'm just curious. Can we order an AMH on me? She'd be like, yeah, sure. Let me order it for you. Now, take your, get your shot ready. Insurance might not cover it. So you might be doing self-pay on certain labs with that. But I want to bring up this because I just did a test with this company. Companies like Everly Well, Modern Fertility, or Let's Get Checked have at-home testing kits that you can do and send into them. I actually just did a food sensitivity test and I'm awaiting my results. Um, And they have a ton of different options for testing. It was quick. It was easy. They pay for your shipping and handling. And all it is is a finger poke and filling out some circles on a piece of paper. That's it with your blood. I was actually very tempted to order the fertility kit for myself just because I'm curious to know what it is. Yeah. I mean, I would, again, I've only been in this a little over a year now, but I haven't been to back to my OB. Um, and now I'm really curious to ask them. I could personally ask my doctor 
that I work for. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, it would kind of go into the system and, you know, my coworkers would be able to see it and stuff. I, I would kind of have to list as almost a patient, not that he wouldn't be uncomfortable doing that, but as a regular person, you know, and trying to go about this as if I had no idea about infertility, my first step would be my next OB to ask her if I could just have these tests done. Um, but these new kits, these at-home kits, we don't see patients with results from them. You know, <laughs> once they come to us, they've kind of had more in-depth uh, research and, you know, looking into what their problem could be. But for someone like me and Kendra, who aren't trying to have babies right now, but who are scaring ourselves with this information, <laughs> it's kind of good to know and learn. And so I would totally be open to and curious, you know, what these would say. I think if you're truly having a problem, please go to your, either your OBJYN or go to a fertility doctor. You know, they're going to want to see their own results in right. hand. Um, I don't think they would dismiss these things, but um you know, to be honest, I've never seen a patient come in and say, Hey, I've done this at home kit. I think I need fertility treatment. I've never seen any results from them. I have no idea how accurate they are or, you know, what the doctor would think. I think mostly if you were truly having a problem, if you did one of these kits and you went to a specialist, they would want to check for themselves. I don't think they would. Yeah. I don't think they would take it to heart, but I think if you're just kind of curious to know, you know, where you're at and you're, fertility window of a woman I I think they're probably okay right I would think so I mean once I get this food sensitivity test results I can be more um open with how accurate I think (laughs) that these companies are um but Lexi and I might go ahead and buy them and do them if Everly Well is accurate yeah, I'd love to do a follow-up episode and just kind of yeah. compare and contrast, especially with our knowledge, you know? It, yeah. I don't even know what they check. Have you looked into what they check for as far as blood levels? Yeah, it's Are like you supposed AMH to do it on AMH, TSH. It's basically everything that we talked about besides luteinizing hormone because that's urine. But it might be interesting to do a little study and do these and then also just go through our OBs and have almost the same things drawn if we can kind of time it right and compare so that people can know if it's worth the money and the comfort of that home. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be, if you guys are interested in that, let us know. We'd be very open to do that and do a follow-up episode. If people care, if they don't care, I'm not going to invest the money, but but let us know if you want us to sleuth it out. I think it could be very interesting to kind of compare and contrast. We're interested. If that's something that you are interested in too, let us know. We'll be happy to jump in and try it out for you guys. Okay. One last question (laughs) with what's going on. How has fertility been affected by COVID? Lexi, take it away because I have no idea. Oh, so we touched earlier on ASRM, American Reproductive Society. Um, they have been sending out kind of their updates on recommendations since, I mean, the beginning of everything. Right. Um, there's, as with everything healthcare and everything going on, so much politics behind it. They have suggested from the beginning kind of to stop all cycles, maybe complete the ones that are 
in the middle of, so, you know, say you're a patient, you're going through, you're on day five of injections, you know, you can't get back that money in drug, you can't kind of just stop your body from reacting to it. So they were kind of saying, maybe you can finish those out, but don't start anything new. Um, A lot of practices in the state of Texas, as far as I know, have stopped a lot of their uh, cycles. And when I talk about a cycle, that's, you know, IUI, IVF, anything basically when you call with your full period and we get you started on any type of treatment. Um, So they've kind of suggested to put a halt on that. That being said, I would be so upset. Well, and then, you know, that's the problem. So they're not saying to regular, I guess we can call them fertile Americans, like Mm -hmm. don't stay home and be quarantined with your partner and create a baby. You know, there's no evidence right now on what the repercussions are on getting pregnant, having a baby. We won't know for a while. Right. So there's the thought that it's unfair to tell women who are trying so desperately hard, who are kind of losing that window of opportunity to not try and have a baby when there's people at home who can get locked up in two seconds. Exactly. So from my, yeah, I was gonna say from my knowledge, you know, what we're going over at our clinic right now, pregnant patients are at no more risk from coronavirus than you would be with the flu. Like we don't want a patient who's pregnant to get the flu. We don't want you to get the coronavirus, but you know, there's a lot of stigma going on right now that pregnancy is a big no-no right now. And that's not really the case. Like Lexi was saying, there's not enough evidence to truly be able to tell us yes or no, if you're a high-risk patient, just because you're pregnant. Pregnancy does put you in a state of immunocompromisation, which is where your immune system is not functioning a hundred percent, like it would be in a normal, healthy person. But that's not to say that you're more higher risk than others. And that's the scary part too, though, is we won't know. I mean, think back to Zika virus. Some of our listeners might be too young to actually have given it crap, but um, (laughs) when it came out, it was really scary for those who were trying to get pregnant or who were pregnant. Yeah. Um, But we won't know until about nine to 10 months from now, until those first Corona babies are starting to be born. If there is truly a implication of the mother contracting the virus and then delivering a baby like right just having know. an effect so there, there's no unfortunately no scientific evidence so our doctor has been taking it on a very case-by-case basis you mm-hmm. know depending on if this is your window if you're kind of in an age group that if we put it off for a few more months it might really change the outcome of treatment and stuff like that so we have still been running kind of full throttle I mean our hours have decreased the amount of patients and how we stagger them to keep the office flow safer um, and you know not have too many people in the waiting room if any but we are still seeing patients and you know we still believe they have every right to get pregnant now that being said we've had a lot of patients pull out you know we've Mm -hmm. had a lot call and say I want to wait and see how this all plays out I want to you know just kind of hold maybe skip a month or two right and I there's nothing wrong with that either you're spending a shit ton of money 
if you know yeah there's a lot of uncertainty <laughs> in the world and do it in a pandemic right. I understand yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't know what I would do again we go back to you don't know how you'd react in a situation so we have some that are like don't give a shit I'm full throttle I want this baby and then we have some that are like and eh, this isn't the best time to spend a crap ton to you bring a baby into the world time, exactly so I don't months. think there's any wrong choice if you're trying to get started with um infertility treatment right now I would look around there are clinics still open Mm -hmm. Uh, we are seeing people in person we just have a doctor that believes that's you know the best way telemedicine is great but we just haven't felt the need to go quite there yet for everything and you know we want people to have babies we want people to be successful and happy and start their families especially when things are so time sensitive and in a specialty like that and I mean, even OB-GYN, just like Lexi, we're still seeing patients in the office. So many people are under the impression that our office is closed, which is mind-boggling to me. What do you what do you guys <laughs> think that we just, oh, you're pregnant. Sorry, we're closed. We're it's still so funny because people will call and then we'll answer. And then they're like, oh, are you still working? We're still open. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's why I answered. And they're like, okay, thanks. I was just checking. And then they like hang up and you're like, okay. Okay, bye. Cold <laughs> uh, back if you need anything. We'll I get it. It's a terrifying time. time. And, you know, depending on who's listening and what area of the country you're at, it's it might be very different. case by case. Yeah. It's very locational. It's I see both sides of all of it. I did have a major freak out when COVID started. And, you know, I was upset that we were still seeing patients to the extent that we were because we're not um oh how what were they calling it essential we're not essential to an extent you know right there's some people that view it like their timeline is essential um fertility in the beginning of all this I was just an American very scared and I didn't think what we were doing is essential I felt like I needed to be back in the hospital or doing something to truly help people who are very, very sick. Right. Um, I've gotten over the anxiety and, you know, we're all scared. We're all we're learning unaware day by day. of the unknown. It's changing every single day. So I'm, I'm back on board. I'm very supportive. You know, I had a human 24 hour breakdown about everything. <laughs> it's, it's scary. All of this is scary. So you have to kind of decide, I think with fertility and what's going on in the world right now in the pandemic, you have to decide how important it is to get started right away. Um, yeah, things are starting to open back up. You know, things are getting better. The curve is looking better from everything that we've been doing. If you're willing to come in for a consult, or want to talk about it and figure things out, there are options for sure. Right. Um, Absolutely. The world of medicine has not shut down and will not shut down. We're all frontline healthcare workers, you know, no matter what specialty we're in, we're always here for you. Some specialties more essential than others, but at the end of the day, you know, people are still going to be seeking out getting pregnant and people are still pregnant. So my clinic is fully up and running. Lexi, like she said, hers is up and running. And, you know, reach out to your doctor if you're unsure if their clinic is even open at this point in time. Yeah. (laughs) Pick up the phone and call. And if we answer, you can hang up on us. We've had it a few times. (laughs) Then you can really think about the conversation. Oh, oh, bye. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't want to say anything. I was just calling. 
<laughs> but you know to wrap things up let no. us know your fertility questions if you have more this was a long episode we would be more than happy to dive deeper into certain subjects if maybe you've gone through some of the preliminary testing and mm-hmm. you want to know your next options love to come back and answer questions on that um if you want to see us do the everly well or the fertility at home treatments um and then you know go as far as to test them against our own offices and blood tests let us know i'd be more than happy to do it if people actually cared if they don't i don't (laughs) let us know if you care at all but i'm i'm with you there i think that would be kind of interesting to look at so any of this interests you you have more questions or concerns we tried to reduce this topic as much as possible and you know it's it's just an impossible thing to do because we got as big as possible And it's still a very long episode. So thank you for listening if you're still listening at this point in time. (laughs) Or if you're super drunk from taking a drink every (laughs) single time we said insurance. (laughs) You need to add that to your podcast. It's like a game. You need Uh, to have like some games. Like every time I say this word during this (laughs) subject. And I think to end things, happy Monday. Have a great week. We're going to end things with insurance. Take your shot. We'll catch you next time.